Black cherry really is the best flavor of seltzer. Like, what could beat it? Are we... Is this the uh, the seltzer uh, ASMR episode now? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Did you get that? It, it was definitely coming through. Oh, shit. It was real. Yeah. Have you been recording this entire time? Here, let's let's do this. Yeah, we have we have twenty five minutes of us fumbling around <laughs> like idiots. Let's do this. Good episode. Quality content. Oh yeah. That sounded great. <laughs> there, no, I'll, I'll show me in front of the mic. All right, this is a wine glass. It's going to be different harmonics. <laughs> Are you drinking seltzer out of a wine glass? I am. I am. Chris, this is a classy show. Limited know. resources. <laughs> One more. A vigorous pour for Sean. <clears throat> there we go. Now, that's a classy podcast. <laughs> First, Folks, you don't get this on the RA exchange, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good story we can talk about how uh, Suzanne Ciani made the Coke bottle opening sound on a modular synthesizer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It got paid Boku bucks for that. Yeah. 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 She funded like six or seven albums with that money. Really? Really? <laughs> That's pretty sick. That that that's that again is like music industry in a in a nutshell. Totally. Where you're 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 able to make albums based on the income you made off of making a bottle opening fizz sound for a major corporation. Uh, but like, what else should I be now, doing with my modular synth? Like I could <laughs> I could make some dough, right? You got to get in with the uh, like uh, yeah. Making music for films and uh, Eno TV made, shows and yeah, podcasts. Sync. Eno made no sync. good records That's after the making the, uh, the Windows uh, sound, though. Brian Eno? Yeah. He made the Windows sound? Didn't he make the Windows? Yeah. For uh, yeah. Windows, Windows uh, 95. Windows 95. Yeah. 95, yeah. I don't remember how the sound goes. <laughs> it's beautiful. Okay. Did he make it on a modular synth? Also, or did he make it? Probably in made it with the DX7. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a preset. <laughs> yeah, shit. What's up, the, Chris? Uh, the Windows XP background, that rolling hill. That's uh, that picture was taken in up in Petaluma, where my parents live. Yeah, nice. So, and it was taken. Also exciting. It was taken by Harold Budd. <laughs> and that's how he funded his album. That's, yeah, that's how he funded all yeah. his records. Yeah. John Hassel uh, designed the start button. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's, that's kind of a sick idea. An operating system designed, designed exclusively by musicians <laughs> would not work very well. It, yeah, it would not be very operable. It'd be, you know, it'd, it'd be intuitive. Reality by Dan Snazelle. <laughs> <laughs> God, the snazzy operating system would be a fucking blast. <clears throat> That'd be fun. 
Um, should we just introduce the episode? Yeah, let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Uh, it's Basecamp Beta let's number... 15? No. 16? 16. Damn. I think so. Yeah. I think yeah, right. 16. Um, it's Chris. Sean here. O'Sullivan. <laughs> this is the other Chris, Zaldua. And today we've got Steve Mizek sitting in with us in the building. Steve, how's it going? Quite well. I'm fully seltzered at this point. You're so. fully seltzered? No, I think it's good that we got the ice cream truck in the background. <laughs> I, I can hear the ice cream truck in the background. Oh, good. It's the one with the claps. It's the best one. It's the best one. Um, oh, yeah. Did you hear the whistle? <laughs> I, was, you know, I was suggesting you, you should turn Steve up. Oh, I was trying to suggest with my arcane gestures. Well, I was digging the beats outside. Um, I I, I actually, there was a time in college that I took a lot of LSD one time, just just one time. Um, Just one time? No, I I took LSD on occasion. And uh, it was the day after, and uh, things were a little blurry. And I was just on my couch, kind of piecing reality back together. And it was in Tivoli, New York, a very small town with basically one street. And the ice cream truck, truck would start, and I would hear it. It would get louder, Damn. and then quieter, and then quieter. And then it would almost vanish from earshot. And then it would start getting louder and louder <laughs> and louder. And then it would start getting quieter, and it would never fully go away. Wow. There's a, there's a metaphor in there. There's a metaphor there. I don't know, there, yeah, I, I yeah. Don't know what, what capitalism. <laughs> what is if you were if you were on acid at the time, you would have gotten the metaphor. But <laughs> That's right. You were, coming, you were, you know, I would have pieced it all together. What is your what is your ice cream truck go to order? I haven't ordered. Well, I don't eat sweets really, so I think I think a, just a good old ice cream sandwich. Those are pretty good. One. I mean, those will always be good. Or a toasted almond? Isn't that what it's called? I have no idea. Toasted almond? What's what the, the fuck what's is the that? one? It's like, uh, oh god, is it like a, a cone it's a, that's covered in like nuts? It's not a cone. It's it's just one of the good humor things. Toasted something, almond, good humor. Yeah, dude, it's totally good. Co- yeah, toasted almond, good humor. This thing. Oh toasted yeah, almond, yeah, yeah. Those are good. They're good. Those are pretty good. I love a good visual gag in a podcast. <laughs> Those ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of our listeners know what the toasted almond looks like, okay? They will now. They're all going to go Google it. Well, no. We'll just make sure the toasted oh, almond wow. is the, like, the image you know. of the, the, the you know, yeah. episode. <clears throat> that way it's everyone... It's like coated w- in what appears to be cornflakes, but that's, I would assume, it's toasted almonds. Hell yeah, baby. It, and it has paleo. an almond... <laughs> <laughs> Mark, that was three minutes. Ah, oh, Jesus. <clears throat> yeah, corn, corn flakes are too high in carbs. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, toasted almonds always good. That, they would usually have that. You know, ice cream sandwich. I right? like the frog one. I like the frog one. Oh, you so like the, because those ones are all variations on a theme. It's basically the same as the SpongeBob one, but a different shape. Is it? Isn't it? It's just like colored just, ice cream in to look like yeah. a face. It just with, looks like a horrifying frog. With gumball eyes? 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Did they have a Kermit the Kermit the Frog one ever? They had to, right? Uh, probably. Well, I, and I, I can picture the frog one Chris is talking about. Yeah, yeah. I'm just imagining a Kermit one now. Yeah. I just think it's incredible that every ice cream truck has, has essentially this exact same ice cream. Like, there's some big ice cream truck conglomerate in the sky that's telling them all, you yeah. can only do this. Yeah. Well, you know about, like... Well, <laughs> is it a franchise? It, I mean, there's, like, the whole Mr. Softy thing here. Right. And that's basically just turf wars. Uh, you know, it's like fucking cutthroat. Um, is, it, you, is, you, it, is it? Yeah, have you never read the articles? No, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, fucking, like, Mr. Softy drivers, like, carry around, like, baseball bats in their, in their uh, trucks and shit because they got to, like, you know, people step on their terrain and they got to beat them back. This is, fe- like, fellow... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's, it's, t- it's like, it's a bloodbath. Damn. Um, as far as good humor goes, I don't know, but... More like bad humor. I assume it's kind of the same. Um, so that's that, that, that's crazy. So so they're all they're all just they're all freelancers. They're all subcontracted, basically. Then yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's a very millennial thing to do. I, I guess so. I've never you know, seen a millennial drive a Mister Softy truck, but I guess it's just, right. But if you think about it, it was the gig economy, right before the gig economy yep. existed. Mm-hmm. Pro, Proto gig economy. So why aren't there hipster? Ice cream trucks. Oh, there are. That's actually a fucking brilliant business idea, right? I mean, there. I guess Big Gay Ice Cream kind of did that, right? Yeah. There's a Van Van Levens or whatever. Van, yeah, has Van Leeuwen. Leeuwen would do it yeah. at like the uh, at like the bougie. Uh, they, ha- I mean, they have a couple of trucks around New York now. Interesting. Yeah. I am. They're missing like the one of the just me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, one of the new at the beach, uh, like the Rockaways, they'll have that makes one sense. or two bougie. Hipster, whatever things. There seems to be a lot of like new ice cream shops in San Francisco that are specifically like Japanese or Asian ice cream, and they're really thick. They're almost like gelato, Hmm. but they have uh, like Asian inspired flavors like uh, Genmaicha or like toasted sesame. That's pretty good, but it's you know, it's expensive and. People line up for it, which makes it a very San Francisco of course, thing. Yeah. Katie took me by a place that sounds kind of similar uh, in Chinatown a couple of weeks ago, where they had like um, here, yeah, yeah, they had like a plum flavored one. And, the Chinatown and, Ice Cream Factory? I don't think that's it. No, it's like a newer. Oh, it's a newer it seemed, one. It, it feels kind of like Japanese style. Okay. And yeah, they have like um, we, we got the plum flavor, and and there is all these different cerealish toppings and mochi topping and. Oh, there's like toppings and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the ice cream was 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 very good, and uh, I think Katie. Oh, Katie got fruity pebbles on it. That was really fucked up. Oh, that's cool. Well, I don't know how we got on this tangent, but Steve uh, <laughs> ran little white earbuds. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's obviously my next career after little white earbuds was uh, getting very deep into ice cream. <laughs> I'm also three thousand pounds now. <laughs> Um, yeah, Steve, you ran Little White Earbuds, uh, for what, 10 years all told? Nearly 10 years. Yeah. Wow. And that, when did Little White Earbuds start? Technically in 2005. Um, it started out as like a little WordPress blog that I, uh, started out of boredom, uh, during college, like a winter break in college, I would go get stoned 
and then come back and all the MP3s I had downloaded from the last day or two, where I would just post about <laughs> with pithy, pithy little captions and some. That was how the the fact that we always had the images with each post that had nothing to do with. They were just art. That's where it started from. Just my MP3 blogger days. Yeah, MP. That was like in the heyday of MP3 blogs, yeah. like two thousand six, seven, when like the glory that, days. Yeah, that yeah. was all the rage. I mean, yeah, I, I, my first MP3 blog was two thousand four, so that was when things were like really mm-hmm. it seemed like such a, a hopeful era. It really was. We've, we've touched on it a little bit on the podcast before, but it, it really was kind of a an amazing moment when suddenly you had just they're, they're like all the doors opened up you had access to everything and uh and people were actually really interested in presenting it in a way that was compelling and uh and informed um it feels like so quaint and so ancient now right? yeah but i mean people like formed. it feels completely ancient yeah people like formed communities and everything you know um like blog it's, it's kind of like uh you know those old like uh, GeoCities web rings, you know, in the blogs, you would have like the blog roll on the side with like links to other blogs and people would be commenting yeah. on each other's <clears throat> blogs and things. Um, so it was kind of definitely had a sort of like, I don't know, community feel a little bit like that. It was the first time that people finally all had access to music that had been previously stored on physical mani- physical forms and such. And so, like the the moment we're in now, where everything is at your fingertips, is like it's it's banal to yeah. to have yeah. that. But at that point, point we all were like, "Holy shit! We just got off of DSL internet. We can finally listen to this music in real time, or at least some approximation of it." And uh, you know, so people were just like, you know, there's their level of stokeness. I think contributed to like a real sense of community yeah for sure and like in 2005 2006 like that that was a period where like a lot of this stuff was coming out on vinyl and did not come out on digital and probably maybe people ripped it but that wasn't really even a given you know Um, yeah and so it was very different uh it's like completely different than than today really right it's it's like like I feel like now it's almost swapped where it's like digital is a complete given. And if you're lucky, something might come out on vinyl and it might sell. Right. That's like, right. yeah. The might sell is the, that's the, right. That's yeah. the, that's the, it might, it might the not active. lose money. Right. That's, it might, that's, right. That's worth right. thinking. You, Cause, cause you could definitely you sell, might but it be still able, might not, still yeah, will definitely yeah. lose money. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yes. You're right. If you're really, really lucky, it might break even. Yeah, shoot for the stars, man. <laughs> Break even. Break even. Hey, but that's that. That was always the goal with underground music. Who are we kidding? Yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. know. I mean, for sure. But um, anyway, back. Right, but I just we, think we were it was we a were lot all just deluded because there were seven good years where like good music was selling. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was that was an accident. That shouldn't have happened. <laughs> uh, on my walk home, I was actually thinking about little white earbuds, and I was I, and I was thinking I was like. In my head, I was like, was it a blog or a magazine? And I feel like it was a blog that became a magazine. And then I was thinking about what the distinction is between a blog and a magazine is. And I didn't really have a good answer, but I felt like the key, the key distinction is, is that a blog, in my opinion, is a much more, it has a much more personal perspective than a magazine. Right. 
And it sounds like that's what Little White Earbuds actually started as, was just you blogging, Steve. Exactly. And then, yeah, once but, I got other people I, involved, it, it sort of evolved into something more mature, quote-unquote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. with lots of perspectives, with someone, myself, setting the tone from the top and dictating coverage and stuff like that. We also tried to be impartial, sort of. Also, to, also unthinkable now. Right. What um, do you mean by impartial? Well, I mean, or like just we tried to be as, I don't know. We all we all had our favorites, but we didn't just like cover just the people we cared about. We, yeah. We 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 provided coverage of a variety of different stuff. Each of us took on different things. Were part of our specialties, but. Um, you know, we're, we're always pushing. We also did negative coverage, which was very rare for a blog. You would, it's, I can't even, I mean, unless it was like purely like this guy's a piece of shit. I can't stand right, him. It was also don't listen out. to his record. <laughs> right. Um, you know, yeah, no one, no one had time for that as they say. So, I mean, you, you were upholding the publication to, to like objective journalistic standards. For sure. I mean, the reason I started it was because I was sick of getting bossed around at RA, to be perfectly honest. I was working, I was doing pieces for them and features for them. And uh, God bless Jeremy Armitage if he's listening to this. He was quite a dude. But uh, one time he kept me editing for eight hours straight. We were just on AOL Instant Messenger going back and forth. And he like we went line by line through a feature for eight hours. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. I'm running my own publication now. <laughs> <laughs> I, wow. I mean, literally everything I've ever done has always been like, oh, no one's going to pay me to do this. I'll start something myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's yeah. that punk DIY spirit in me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the, I mean, I guess because at the time there were things that were kind of more magazines. So like, you had Accelerator, which was a magazine that was kind yep. of building a web presence. Um, there was RA. There was Pitchfork. Yeah, and those. Was, yeah, those were more. I don't know, but also at that time, I don't know. It felt a little like, um, you know, the blogs were talking about, um, you know, little white earbuds, minimal sausages, all the other ones. Um, the like, they they were far. They were the distance between them and RA was not huge. Right. You know, um, in terms of what like, do you mean by that? In terms of like uh, the kind of coverage they did, in terms of like the, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. like impact. Um, well, see, because I, I, I don't know, I, I, I feel the opposite because I, well, and this might just be where I was at at that time, but when I was like in like, you know, 07, 08, 09 is probably around the timeline that I discovered Minimal Sausages and Little White Earbuds. And I felt like the music they were writing about was worlds apart from the music I was I could find on like RA, for example. Yeah, I would I would agree Maybe too. I just wasn't paying attention. R- RA at, at, but like, at, at that juncture I, seemed like like basically just tech house trash to me. Well yeah, like well at that yeah, time totally RA was right. still like, talking was, about like yeah, progressive and, house yeah, yeah, and like I mean that's where they physical. that's where they came from. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's let's not let's not get it twisted. They yeah, were yeah. started as a progressive house site and then have gotten more and more underground, at least in terms of who they want to cover. But they still, you know, they also it's you know recognizing on what side your bread is buttered. And yeah, like who's yeah. going to be who's going to pay attention and who who are their competitors? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but they were also right, like, like at, the, at very deep in the middle. At that thing. time, I've. 
I felt like, yeah, exactly. Like, like RA was exclusively like an Ibiza minimal minus records yeah. outlet. It was following and the like, trends. Which it, which it, yeah, you know, yeah, it still, yeah. still does. So yeah, you know, yeah. right. No, um, nothing's changed. There. I, I, I think it's not that RA has gotten more underground or broadened its focus. It's just that underground doesn't exist the way it did 10 years ago. Yeah, right, exactly. Sure. It, has, it has totally flattened out, yeah. Yeah, but also I guess what I meant but at that was that like it just felt like RA and Little White Earbuds and like there wasn't quite this distance and then all of a sudden like RA has like ticketing in-house. Um, you know, it just like kind of like starts to imbalance a lot more. Like RA just had way more pull, way more, um, you know, like publishing way more often, like doing more shit compared to all the blogs, and you know, like a lot of the blogs had all the same things, like daily reviews, podcasts, you know, it's like pretty, you know, but it was a nice like tight kind of ecosystem. And yeah, definitely, um, it just felt a little more like things were a bit more even, whereas now it's just kind of like you have a couple of behemoths and that's it. I, I think you're right that like the influence of this, like the, the, like these, you know, medium, well, to large size blogs, but still like very much blogs, and like independent publications were about as impactful in, in the dance music world as these like, you know, larger kind of, uh, or at least close. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that tracks also Steve, with where a- I'm sorry, Chris, uh, with where the underground was at that same time, things were like much more underground. I would say that like, you know, there weren't the number of festivals there were there, there yeah. the size of the clubs weren't necessarily the same. I feel like a lot of things in general were <clears throat> so much more underground that you couldn't really get any bigger than the underground. It was at that time. Now the underground is a full time business for right. lots and lots of yeah. people. And that's, you know, so, and similarly the press is stratified, uh, stratified. Yeah. So. Steve, I was going to ask you in the, in the early to mid heydays of Little White Earbuds, how did you how did you get word out? Was it like like how did people discover? I like I can't remember how I discovered the blog. How did people? Because this was also basically the pre social media era. So how did you how did you get word out? Uh, so I actually was recounting this story to a coworker. Um, this is one of our first ways that we got out there, which had very little to do with uh, dance music actually proper. Um, in 2007, I want to say, um, or right before we jumped over to being a dot .com, uh, Raleigh Pemberton's blog, if everyone remembers Raleigh Pemberton, uh, leaked a LCD sound system track, and no one read his blog at that time, or maybe they did, but uh, I just republished it on Little White Earbuds, and Gawker caught wind of it. Put it on the front page. There you go. Oh, and, wow. uh, well, it was, it was really, yeah. Holy shit. And all of a sudden, that was the front page of the internet, then. right? <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I had like my traffic went up like immeasurably. And I had Jonathan Galkin in my inbox, like lighting me on fire um, and threatening legal action. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that it was not legit to be posting this. Obviously, we'll take it down. Please don't sue me. And, uh, but th- that obviously brought me to a much, brought Little White Earbuds to a much larger audience. But that was still when it was pretty much just me. Um, and then I think that it was wow. just sort of like our podcast would go a lot further than anything else. So yeah, would come that's into the actually podcast. how I discovered. Yep. That, that's, that's how I discovered the blog was through one of the podcast mixes. 
and I think that like I mean we were I always which we were always choosing you know whereas I think Ari at the time because of what was popular at the time was covering a lot of like the bigger names so your Troy Pierce's your Magda's etc um, and we were you know our first podcast was Terrence Dixon and it kind of just stayed weird from there and so the people who were already into that followed the podcast for sure and I think that sort of it sort of grew on itself um, huh the yeah. podcast mix is also kind of increasingly becoming a relic in its own way. It I mean, sort they're, of feels they're, that way, isn't? They're it? they're out there. They're like they're they still are you know kind of uh, there there are more of them than ever. And if they, you if you're a musician, you certainly feel compulsion to yeah, to do yeah. them, right? But uh, they feel less and less relevant. Um, definitely, like a, a just kind of anecdotally observing SoundCloud plays for those kind of things. They're down hugely from where they were five four, five, six years ago. Hmm. Um, I wonder if that could be just, if the, the long format is just not as popular anymore, unless you're in a nightclub where you're sort of locked into the experience. Yeah. 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 More or less. That's what I think. It's just like, we're like so inundated. Like, yeah, it's just, like yeah, even saturation. I, when I, yeah. Like when I think back to 2010, when I was like reading minimal sausages and little white earbuds religiously, I would listen to the like I would sit and like listen to 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 all the mixes and now I'm like there's no I I fucking can't keep up like I just like I don't even bother I don't even bother listening to mixes these days. Although it's it's funny cuz on the other end then you have with these chill mixes, these study mixes on YouTube whatever else, the 8 hours of chill music and people, you know, but I guess that's sort of the difference is like it's either background no now or it's songs. I guess also yeah. See, that's oh, that's a different thing altogether because that's not really a mix. It's like it's almost wallpaper. That's almost like yeah. algorithmically generated. Well, I was gonna a say, lot of it is, yeah. Like, like uh, uh, I think another reason that the like you know, kind of uh, the the podcast mix is declined because of the rise of, of Spotify and uh, and uh, other streaming platforms like that that just do provide you with an endless stream of music that you can just have on. Yeah. It's funny that Spotify and but Spotify and uh, all those places are going now for longer form things. They're going for podcasts. You would be you would think that they would. I suppose the the legality behind a lot of these mixes is so dubious that like no one wants to touch them right. except for SoundCloud, yeah. which seems to have somehow gotten around a lot of this. Things aren't getting taken yeah. down like they used to, anyways. Yeah, I mean, I want to go back to just a bit about the media climate because we've also sort of talked on the show a lot. Um, about yeah, what I mean the the lack of any sort of media climate here the the fact that you have just kind of like a site like RA or whatever where the writing about you know like record reviews are just I mean no one reads them um, yeah because no one buys the record so why would you read about a record that you're not going to buy yeah and they, I mean they're like <laughs> super phoned in right and then you have I guess the rest of it are just like people on Twitter talking about stuff, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's also, there's I, no like... I'm pretty sure Techno Twitter died last week. I'm, I'm kind of I may serious. have, yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's over. But I, I think, um, I w- and this is probably uh, too simplistic of a sort of picture of the techno media landscape over the past 10 years, but I feel like... Uh, I feel like it's mostly right and also uh, most, and then also um, 
is similar to a lot of other dynamics, which is that you had um, initial sort of like these blogs that kind of appeared and then they kind of gained a sort of following. And then there was just like a nice ecosystem of blogs writing about music and talking with each other. And then uh, some of those blogs started growing bigger and bigger and bigger, such as like RA. And then um, at some point, large corporations got involved. Um, this basically when right about when minimal sausages and little white earbuds went down was when thump started. Um, uh, yeah. Vice is yep. relatively short lived thing. Um, I think, yeah, other uh, things had a more stable source of income or investment behind them. Um, there was Juno Plus for a while, which was good, but also run by Juno, so it wasn't necessarily independent. Right. Um, and then these things kind of existed for a bit, and then, I mean, they weren't profitable for, like, the company, so they pulled it. Uh, Thump went away after only a couple of years. Um, uh, good riddance. Well, yeah. Um, Juno, which was good. Um, that yeah, Jun Juno Plus was, was great. Juno Plus was great, but that went away um, after only a couple of years. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we now see, like, uh, other things being pulled out and uh, collapsing, and now, we like, what's left, you know? Well, I think there's an interesting phenomenon that happened exactly along this timeline that you're talking about, Chris, which is that social media especially Facebook, ascended to heights, I think, like, like that even, even their, their creators could not have imagined. And they realized that in order to monetize their platform, they basically had to kill the concept of, quote-unquote, organic reach. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that is a thing that really happened around the same time that, little white earbuds had to had to shut down is like Facebook and all these social platforms were like well if you have built a giant following on our site um, actually moving forward you're gonna have to pay us right. to basically distribute your content the way that 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 we used to right and so once that happened that has kind of made that has kind of made starting anything new, but especially anything media-related, all but impossible, unless you have loads of capital ready to, like, sink into a social distribution strategy. For sure. And and not into writing, for sure. Everything into video and not right. into writing. Yes. I mean, you know, it's funny because yes. that, that arc goes so hand-in-hand hand with just, again, how the underground and techno, like the, the, the dance music scene in and of itself became more of a business. And as it yeah. became more of a, more and more of a business, it became harder for the, the small guys like little white earbuds to keep up because, you know, we weren't out there aggressively courting businesses to do anything. I mean, f you know, for the longest time, little white earbuds, our main um, 
patron, if you will, was Fabric. Fabric would buy display ads for, they bought, they bought them for like three or four years. Um, and, wow. and it wasn't a lot of money necessarily, but it was enough that I was able to pay everyone. And then when Fabric, totally. when um, display ads started becoming like completely irrelevant, obviously, why would anyone mm. pay us for them? And so our, our revenue stream just went nowhere. And, you know, you know, I'm not a business person by any stretch of the imagination. So like my, my way to turn what we were doing into something that could earn money was, you know, especially cause we didn't have any aims to grow into a forum or a, uh, you know, a ticket site or an event site or any sort of thing. I wanted right. to start a small store as related to that, but like the, you know, the logistics of turning that into something that actually made money just was, what are you talking about? There's tons of money in retail. Yeah, I know, especially uh, especially in uh, underground techno. <laughs> so um, record stores are doing great. Vinyl's back. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, and I think that also for me, that's when I started to start tuning out into the idea of being part of the media. It just like really just seemed harder and harder to like just care about it enough to self sacrifice that much to yeah. sort of make it happen. Um, and so I chose to uh, beat myself up a different way and start record labels. Always a good move. <laughs> Always a yeah. good move. Yeah. I was just putting more of my money down the toilet at a time instead of, you know. Oh, yeah. Now, now you're just straight up flushing it. <laughs> right. Or, or as, as, as we talked about with, uh, with Anthony. Uh, Throwing it out of a chopper. Yeah. Yeah. Take the luxury copper, copter, <laughs> ch- chopper, ch- chopper, copter. You just download Blade and uh, book, <laughs> book, a, book a voyage from here to uh, Jersey, fly over Manhattan, and just uh, throw your records out of the... Co- but, <laughs> but don't maybe don't use Blade. Apparently, they've all been crashing. Oh, shit. Is what I learned. Because I, I thought I'd be fun, I thought it'd be funny to, like, I, you know, could scrounge up probably enough money to take the shortest possible blade. I've never been in a helicopter. So I thought it'd be funny to, but then my friend was telling me that, yeah, all the blade chopper, like it's just as unregulated as like Uber driving. So for all those scooters, but it's, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, helicopters. So, uh, well, really, I mean, unregulated, but also in the air. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you got to pick a way to go, a chopper crash would be good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. You know, Buy Even my if, album on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like if my obituary said he died in a chopper crash, that lends so much. Even if it's just me being an idiot, trying to like, you know, <laughs> maybe your records will start selling. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, dying that that, that that seems to do that for people. dying is sick. For I mean, it's great for your career. Always good for your career. Um, you should just kill off Gunnar Haslam. He's dead. He's dead, Jim. Yeah, I'm. You know. Dine and chopper crash. I think one of, <laughs> for me, one of the most one of the, one of the most interesting slash depressing slash I don't know like just one of the strangest phenomena is that I cannot for the life of me imagine things going back to the way they used to be. No, it, as far as like yeah, yeah. music no journalism slash record distribution slash. Any of that is is concerned. I just I can't I can't see that cat ever getting put back in the bag, no. and I don't know what sort of like ecosystem or model we're going to be able to develop such that 
reasonable streams of income are available to the pe- to, 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 to the people that that make this content or produce this content or release this I think content, step one is disabuse yourself of the notion that there will ever be a reasonable stream of income for anything you want to do and then just do what you want <laughs> well, to do. <laughs> Truly. Well, sure. I think the, sure. I think the best, you know, this, this came up recently or within the last couple of months as it related to Aphex Twin, but the idea that uh, people of a certain uh, notoriety within the scene who are making, you know, let's just say, hmm, $5,000 a show or more should have to pay in a bit more to, or should be, you know, kicking back royalties. Cause the thing right now is, you know, huh. people get uh, either things for free or they do download them for a dollar 50 on Bandcamp, And then they make, you know, Boku bucks with that. Huh. And you know, no huh. one sees a, a penny. There are definitely good ways for tracking that. I mean, they, they, they came up with a bunch of them and some of them already exist in clubs in Berlin and maybe in other places in Germany. Um, but like the people who are charged with distributing this money are for shit and, you know, have always been like, uh, it's the, the same model that comes in with streaming services where it all just goes into a pool right now. And then they just pay out to people like proportionally, as opposed to like, okay, this song actually got pay- played 50 times at bear That should be worth 50 bucks or whatever else. Um, I mean, and that would that would require te- uh, Twitter, Twitter, techno to house music people to come together and actually agree that you know for the for the benefit of our community we need sure. to do something like this. It would have to be the activism that is seen in other things that being applied to this. Um, I mean, we it, it is sad to see some of these like you know old house artists just die in poverty or like Colonel Abrams dying in like homeless, like yeah. that should not be. But I mean, obviously the music industry has never taken care of people, but we now have the awareness sure. that yeah. we can think of different ways to do things. Even if we can, we may never be able to get them back to what they were before, but we could all reasonably say, yes, we want to do something different about it. Um, and I think that maybe, maybe it's just even going along with like, uh, um, the, what was the name of Avalon's website? The buy club uh, or whatever else. By oh, music yeah. dot club. Yes. Like just like play like playlisting, telling people what you're making and then putting a a bandcamp buy button next to it or something like that. And so, you know, people are like, oh well I really liked when I heard this in Avalon set, I'm gonna buy it for myself. Because then at least you're bringing awareness to the music that you're playing, even if you're not paying extra for it. You know, I like I mean, I'm not against that kind of stuff. Like that, that's fine, but this isn't this isn't gonna fix anything real. Like yeah, when it when you're it getting twenty three dollars extra a year off of a, an album you made that took hundreds of hours to make is not this. This doesn't work. It still I mean, doesn't I, work. I honestly believe that like constructing a viable, beautiful communist society is easier than getting artists <laughs> paid fairly. Like it's honestly to me it seems easier and way more feasible to uh, completely decommodify music and like create a completely new society than finally find out a way to like pay fair artists fairly well i think the the <laughs> it just honestly the it seems is, more reasonable to me i the like, thing there is 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 your solution solves a lot of other problems as well <laughs> well that's the thing it's you know exactly um, i don't know if it's easier but you know if artists uh if the goal is to save civilization then let's you know yeah and then artists are fine because everyone's fine yeah but you know um there are yeah i mean it could be better but I, I, I always, yeah, I, I struggle with this because it just seems so, I mean, 
are people really, I mean, people, like some people buy stuff on Bandcamp, but not that much. I mean, I buy stuff on Bandcamp, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, but we're, I mean, we're us. I mean, you know, the, the people who go and pay a lot of money to see like, you know, an RA top, you know, 500 right. DJ play, like 1% of those people buy music on Bandcamp probably. I mean, yeah. if that, yeah. you know. Um, so I don't know how to, I mean, remunerate, how to like fairly pay, uh, the artists who make the tracks or, or whatever. I mean, the problem is, you know, definitely that like a lot of DJs get paid a lot and most DJs get paid very little or nothing. Uh, artists like who make music get paid absolutely nothing. Cause you know, especially if you don't play shows, right. You know, um, there's no way you're making any money. I mean, one thing that I think it might help, and it's a little awkward for me to be the person saying this, but um, cutting record labels out of the equation, generally speaking, because uh, generally speaking, we are middlemen. We distribute things that don't really need our help to distribute anymore. I think, I, like, I mean, it brings notoriety. It certainly can bring reach. Yeah, I think, but it, but I, I don't, you know, like on a on a small tier label, unless the whole goal is to create a vinyl artifact. That, that an artist themselves would not want to throw $2,000 at, what else do we do that like really makes a big difference? Right. Unless, than, you're, unless, you're of, risk. unless you're of a certain caliber that you have, you know, an extra $500 to throw a promotion, an extra, you know, uh, you know, you have the resources to be able to push things way further than your average small label is. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, though, like, I, it'd be definitely something to consider if record labels made any money. Right. <laughs> well, I, but, I know, but I, I mean, right. I, I'm not going to pretend like Argo does not still make a, a constant stream of small but considerable money. Sure, but... And, but those are things that it's like... And then that comes down to me, or, like, let's just say any record label being good about figuring out when they need to pay out people and then actually doing it. Yeah. Like those are the things that like a lot of record labels choke on because yeah. a lot of people who run record labels are not business people and not to say you need to be a business person to have the acumen enough to do that. But like, you know, a lot of times our heads are 8 million other places besides like, shit, did I do my accounting for the last six yeah. months? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I can fucking, I can I can relate to that. Of course you can. <laughs> literally every label owner I know, except except for literally at a people at a certain level where they have a label manager and they have other people do right. this. Someone whose job it is to do nothing but that. But all these things are hobbies, you know, yeah. for a lot of people. And so we take it about as seriously as as our, as a passion. But then that passion instantly runs out when it involves accounting. Yeah. Yeah. We're just yeah. yeah like yeah. Re, 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 <laughs> real life gets man. in the way, and yeah, then you're just totally. Like, Whoa. This is going to have to take a back seat for yeah. two months. Right, exactly. Um, right. I will say that it is one of my, by the end of this year, I now I'm putting this on a podcast, so someone's got to hold me to it. <laughs> but by the end of this year, I want to have like really good accounting for every release that I've ever done and make sure that every artist knows where they stand. I, I will fully admit that I have not been great on that score because it has been the last part of the running the label that I want to do. Um, and it's really, it's about time. Um, I know for a fact that 98% of these haven't made enough money that an artist would see anything beyond the advance that we give them. I can always, I can always proudly rely on the fact that we did give every single artist an advance. So no one got ripped off necessarily, but, uh, I would love to be more transparent because I think that that's a big thing that's lacking in a hobby built industry 
where it's you know literally yeah. it's not hand not necessarily just handshake deals, but it, you know it's it's a wink wink nudge nudge don't ask me questions kind of a deal. Uh, back to back to the the role of record labels. So I, th- I think labels are still. <clears throat> I, th- I think labels still perform a lot of kind of useful uh, useful. Oh yeah, we got some uh, some Seltzer ASMR back in uh, back we, in action. Do we need to just oh yeah pause here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, just... pause me. Let the let the magic happen. This mic is really good at picking up seltzer. It sounds amazing on the headphones. It sounds <laughs> fucking incredible. <laughs> I hope you're all enjoying this as much as we are because we're loving it. Anyway, Sean, you were saying. Um, no, I, I, think, I think labels still do perform a lot of useful kind of a curatorial context building functions outside of, outside of kind of, a, you know, the more kind of um, risk bearing and, uh, and other functions. Um, Oh, I definitely agree, and I think that that's one of the things that artists sometimes have the m- struggle the most with, and was something that I always brought to the table was an editor's ear, absolutely, Some, someone yeah. who is able to say, "Look, you've got fifty tracks here. I have found the three tracks that are, that go together on a record, and by the way, this this one, Chris, needs uh, no claps on it." I liked the claps on that. I know you. Did. <laughs> I know you did. I know you did, but those are the kind of things that, like, you know, someone with ex- "quote unquote" experience could be able to say to an artist and help them get a track from ninety-eight percent to a hundred percent. But the thing is, I feel like a lot of people, I mean, shit, most people don't listen to demos anymore, and so they're not giving the feedback to people to or developing artists enough to the point where they're getting there, unless again they're you know, house music or something like that, where they have. You know, they're still riding high from whatever that last big single was, and they can throw some money and time at some smaller artists to build them up a little bit in their music. Um, you know, I was right now. I'm putting together American Dance Music Volume Two. Nice plug there. Um, and uh, I was working with this um, young artist, and I was like, you know, at th- at this moment, in the track it starts sounding queasy. Like something about it just sounds weird. He's, and he's no, that's there's that, that's not. It's it's totally normal. And I was like. Just give another listen. And he was like, oh, my God, you're right. It was microtonally off. And I just sat there and I had listened to it with just doing nothing else except for just listening to yeah. it. And mm-hmm. I and he, he thanked me because it, we ended up making the song way better just by giving it 100% in tune. And those are small things, but those are the kind of things that a lot of times artists, especially after hearing a track 100,000 times, can't even distinguish anymore. Well, I mean, as an artist, especially in this uh, medium, I mean, there is no... It, it's all from the ground up, right? It's all on the artist. So there's no mixing stage that someone else does. Um, it gets mastered, but that's very rarely a sort of feedback thing. Um, that's very rarely like a conversation. So the only time really the artist has any feedback on their work to say like, oh, you know, what is there anything I should change um, would be in that conversation with the label owner. Because, yeah. you know, every other part of the... A production process is is up to one person. There's no teams out there building, you know, making music. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely true. And I mean, uh, not to not to toot my own horn too much here, but I think I'm really good at giving good feedback. And I think someone like me who is more of a creative producer than anything else. I'm not a musician. I'm a DJ. I might be a good DJ. I don't know about that. But I think more you're, than that, you're a curator, I like to sit CC. in the background. You're a curator. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I like to put shit together, and I like, and I, like, I think that perspective 
And that outlook is really important, especially as Steve was saying, for young artists. Like, they need someone who's going to be able to, who has the time and the sort of historical knowledge to really comb through what they're producing and be like, let's maybe think about this differently. I've always appreciated working, you know, I pretty much only worked with the label heads who are previously friends. And, uh, you know, having that outside ear has helped me hugely because otherwise you're kind of just, yeah. you're, you're kind of just, you're just kind of in the dark. You're like, is this good? I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to get, uh, to get real feedback from, from friends and peers, um, unless they actually have something at stake. <laughs> oh yeah. Sometimes seltzer. So what just does the future you. hold? What does the future mm-hmm. hold? For what though? For labels, for publications, for, for techno? Yeah. For the, I don't know. For all of us, for the whole, the whole thing. Let let Steve let let's let Steve pour his seltzer. <laughs> Priorities. No, see that that mic doesn't work. It's it's that that that's the seltzer mic. We're drinking we're, seltzer mic is. Uh, those words together make me very happy. Just so everyone knows, we're drinking Schweppes tonight. <laughs> Since 1783. We're on to the black cherry. We're on black cherry. We started a raspberry lime. It's a very typical base camp progression. <laughs> as the evening gets, as, as, the, as the evening wears on, you get a little harder. You get a little, you get a little more twisted. Yeah. You turn to black cherry. Um, so anyway, back to the future of music. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Shit. Let's just, we, 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 we can just see you later. Solve that, 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 Yeah. Well, the question is, know. is like, are, are, do we need publications anymore to show us things? Or are we going to be fed things algorithmically so well that people don't do right. discovery anymore, except for the most diehard people who are still digging in the crates? I, I think that, right, yes. Right, right. I think that is... Right, I kind of it. think we've already answered that question <laughs> in, in that, yes. The, I think the real question is, will we need artists anymore in the future, or will computers do everything for us? Well, that's what, uh, that's what that one venture capitalist right. suggested yeah. in, a, in a recent thing, where he's like, I see the future of music as being not oriented around artists at all, but around mood playlists, where we subscribe to services that, instead of searching for, for music by, by artist or even by a record label, it'll be just, what's your mood right now? And then you just get an uninterrupted stream of content. It'll be like those Buddha boxes, but uh, with a... <laughs> <laughs> those yeah. are sick. Yeah. But, but with your phone or whatever. <laughs> those were sick. Um, I, 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 I think, I mean, obviously we're going to see, see that happen in some capacity, right? Like that's just, that, that is a given. Um, I think... We won't see underground music will still exist for sure, um, and I think music on that, like like we're, you will still need musicians involved to create these algorithms to uh, to update them continually. Um, you'll still need music for various commercial functions, and there will still be people who will have to sort of uh, curate that music, whatever the algorithm produces. So I, I think we could see the role of the musician uh, change, but we'll, we, we still will need people involved at various steps here. Um, you know, already this once is, again, this is like like the, like 
we've already been using machines to, you know, kind of procedurally, algorithmically generate music for a pretty long time. So um, I, 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 I see that less as a kind of a rupture and more as just kind of a, a you know, a new development within a continuum that's been happening for, you know, arguably 50 years. So. We should talk about our favorite Little White Earbuds mixes. Ooh. Yeah, we could talk... We want to talk music. We want to talk mixes. I I have no track in mind today. I didn't. I didn't. I'm, I've been indexing. You so. have no terrible new song oh. to share. Wow. Wow. The last thing I listened to was uh, I got the Roxy Music Angel Eyes 12 inch, which I listened to on 33 RPM. Sounds cool. Baldelli didn't do that. But <laughs> I've been wanting to do it. I watched the movie equivalent of, of your last track, Couldn't Get Arrested, <laughs> White Lightning the other day. That is that track as a as a film. Uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, any Burt Reynolds 70s. It's pretty, pretty uh, Mike Moonshine Rutherford. running caper movie. Yeah. God bless. Yeah. Um... On, uh, Steve, on the last episode, I, I chose to talk about this very terrible song called "Couldn't Get Arrested" by Mike Rutherford, who's a Genesis member, and it's like it's like like Z grade like white guy funk. Ooh, uh, it's it's terrible and it makes <laughs> and Z grade white guy funk. That's a that's a track name. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like like the 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 chorus is actually just couldn't get arrested couldn't get arrested and it's it's it, 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 the song reeks of like white privilege in like fifteen thousand ways I, I'm obsessed Seriously. with it. Um, it's great. Yeah. So yeah. Very white relevant. lightning. White lightning is, is white is, lightning couldn't is, get arrested. Is, is couldn't get arrested. The film. It's, um, be, it's better than that though. It's not Z grade. <laughs> no, 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 no. Why, no. Why lining is why lining is not a B movie. It's a that's an A movie. That's high. That's high cinema. Um, yeah. Let's talk. Uh, should we talk about yeah some of the little white earbuds mixes that made an impact on us personally? It's a nice. Yeah. 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 Since we I mean, already talked about how mixes are dead now, let's look back on some of our favorites. <laughs> yeah. Back when these things mattered. Uh, f- f- the one that stands out of the pack by like a huge margin for me is LeVon Vincent's. Right. Um, that is probably one of the best deep house slash techno mixes I've ever heard. 
that 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 mix just kind of floored me. It was just like I don't know. It was like all these sounds I had been thinking about but not really understanding all tied together. He played a lot of his own stuff in that one too. There were there were a bunch of unreleased things at that time. Yeah. That came out like in the next like few months after that. That was pretty cool. Yeah. I felt like we were getting something exclusive, not just the fact that we had Levon involved, but uh yeah. Uh my personal favorite is was probably um the one that Fred P did. Um Ooh, classic. To me that was a uh that was just a real I don't know. That that one I still go back to all the time. Um, it's long too, isn't it? Wait, almost two one? hours? Yeah, it was two hours. There's one like the the like the black jazz consortium. Yeah, exactly. Um Okay. It was number twenty five or something, I can't remember. Um but it was it was so good. It was so and it was just at that time, you know, um especially for me being in New York, like and I had sort of started to meet all these people. Um I met Ed and Levon and everyone. Um and it just I, I don't know, there's something about that mix, um and just so much of the stuff going on at that precise time that felt really uh just felt hugely exciting. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's just such a good fucking killer mix. It, it holds up so well. Um, yeah, that's probably, that's the one that immediately comes to mind, um, as just being like a really amazing, um, really amazing mix and... really loved uh steve kerr's curator's cuts yeah yeah because especially because it turned me on to one track in particular uh still by dance which is just like a white label kind of edit of a of a robert hood track with an apache breakbeat on it and it's just perfect
he always had the weird the weirdest shit. Like I always would like you know he would always come to me with the most bizarre pitches, and I would always be like, all right, Steve. My favorite though was when I would when for his curators cuts. I think for the last one was when I used a picture of Steve Steve Kerr from the Chicago Bulls instead. <laughs> yeah, classic. That's the, that's the mix. <laughs> I'm talking people about, got yeah. really confused for a second there. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as the curators cuts go, I got to give it up to uh, Momo. Um, that was a good one too. Very close friend. Uh, probably the best DJ that uh, no one knows about because he doesn't DJ. But uh, when he does. Oh boy, strap in! Um, I've never heard Momo DJ. Yeah, it's it's except it's, maybe except maybe on a, a laptop in in that back room back at the uh, the heyday of. Oh yeah, it's very similar. <laughs> uh, his DJ style is very similar, which is to play a Harold Bud record and then play like uh, some like ghetto house at very much the wrong speed. Yeah, I mean, I have a long list. They're all like the. Uh, it's really hard to choose for my children, of course. As they say, but um, I think the ones that really stood out to me the most, like the number four, was Thomas Sumo, and that was like the one like Deep House was starting to become a big thing again, and she like really nailed that sound really well for that moment. Um, DJ Sprinkles as Podcast Fourteen, that was a lot of her own stuff and just other random stuff, and it was just like very rough. And it was actually uh, one of her Deeperama mixes that she let us use for that podcast, um, which uh, made me love her even and her stuff even more. Um, the Chilling the Dew podcast, Casa Masa and Mix Mup, um, just because that was such a bizarre collage of sounds. That was like one of the most creative podcasts that we ever did. Um, I'm also a big soft spot for the Silent Servant versus DBS One. Because <clears throat> that was like literally two podcasts put together into one. So it was, and both of those guys are were really on the top of their game then, or like you know still on the top of their game now. I think in a lot of ways. Um, um, and I also, uh, Garrett Johnson did the one ninety nine, and he was someone I was chasing from the from the earliest days, trying to get him to do a mix. So when I finally made that happen, that was very. Uh, it was a big moment for me personally. And also the Ben UFO one is really quite excellent. I could, I could go on and on though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like the idea of like the sort of concentrated podcast series. Cause so many of them are just kind of like still on, like they start and never end, you know, like 
RA is on podcast 5,000. Fact is on podcast 10,000. You know, it's just kind of like they keep going. This podcast is never going to end. <laughs> Do you have music, Chris? Either uh, of you? Chris's? Uh, well, I was, I mean, I was honestly thinking about that dance track, Dance Still. I mean, that's like, Justice, that was one of the tracks that I discovered dance. from Steve. What? Ju- the, ju- the Justice track, Dance. I don't even D-A-N-C-E. know. D A N C E. Yeah, yeah. By, yeah, by like yeah. Justice, Justice. Um, yeah, yeah, we're talking about Bloghouse. <laughs> oh, I didn't know this was the Bloghouse episode. <laughs> well, we were talking about blogs. <laughs> Look, no one's so got one time thing for leads crookers. to another. <laughs> Wait, so Bloghouse is coming back. Though, yeah, this right? was it. Oh, God, Bloghouse is. Sorry, Chris. We're just I mean, steamrolling over anything you want to say. Um, Megan Garvey's writing a book of <laughs> Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but. Uh, Object was talking about how like he's like yeah, oh yeah that was a I mean that was like a year or two ago yeah like he's like oh yeah I like unironically love Bloghouse we're, we're bringing it back or something I I don't remember but yeah people were saying it was coming back I don't know I, I keep saying Gabber's coming back too it's not happening well it is but just in certain places like uh, 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 Denmark for example Copenhagen Bloghouse or Gabber. Uh, Gabber. Is, is, is Gabber big in, in Copenhagen? Uh, fast, 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 fast techno huh. works pr- quite well there. Like 150 BPM? Yeah, or higher. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think if, if we had another topic that we want to talk about, I think, have you talked, have you all talked about how fast techno is the new thing? Yeah, yeah, we well, have. A little yeah. bit. We haven't really and gone. And we all kind of hate it. We haven't really <laughs> gone in on it. What's really crazy to me is that it seems to be, especially, I mean, I've only been in New York for seven months now, but I noticed that it's like the sound of New York right now. Right. Especially yeah, and playing 140. And and like and what's really interesting to me is that a lot of the new young queer DJs who are getting involved in the scene have all hit that sound super hard and it's 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 I have no relationship with it. Um, and it's it really doesn't blend with anything that I that I that I know uh, myself. It's just really interesting that we've like moved into that era um, and so many people have adopted it instead of it just being this cyclical thing of, you know, oh, it's the late 90s again or whatever. Um, it is the late 90s again. It, 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 it is, is also 90s. that. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, it, for me, it's, it's just a, yet another one of those, you know, cases that comes up continually in my life where the thing that I push for so many years and, and, and really, in, like, enthusiastically, uh, you know, encourage people. I'm like, no, no, no. No, no, one one thirty seven is where techno starts. You go up from there for so many years, and now that now that it happened, now everyone's like, yeah, 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 techno one forty one forty plus, really hard. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, this sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it's just interesting because there was yeah. at, at, in the late nineties and early aughts there was stuff in there that would do that, but it was groovy. And I feel like a lot of stuff that's coming now is super grayscale. Yeah, yeah, just like and it's literally just drums. And like you know, someone who did that really well is like Dijon. Back in that era, he was doing this really like Latin sort of like stuff that like it felt really interesting and it had like some melody in there, or whatever else. And it's feel like people have just really kind of taken the easy way out with a lot of the productions that are coming out now. When well, no one's playing Purpose Maker records, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, we we've, we've talked about this a bit, but yeah, I think also just anything coming back is still just like in that modern template, which is just sort of bear kind style techno, but then just with like, you know, whatever. 
It's crypto crypto tech house. So yeah, crypto tech house. So it's like just like it's Bergein style techno, but like if it's faster, then this is a different thing. If it's got a breakbeat on it, then now it's jungle. You know, if it's got uh, a yeah. Uh, but yes, it's low coder on it. It's electro. You know, still, still, still the same structure. It's all the, the same, same, same production techniques. The same general palettes with, with yeah, a few signifiers swapped. Yeah, and we were definitely complaining about this with uh, Anthony. Um, but yeah, like the sense of groove is completely absent in what is popular uh, largely now. Um, certainly, like yeah, an average night in in New York. Um, yeah, there's there's no groove generally. It's just kind of like fast and like very square. What could we attribute that to? Um, because it's not like it's not like you know, all music has become simpler necessarily. Like you know, it's not like all signs pointing towards oh, this is just how things are going to be now that everyone has access to Ableton or whatever else. But I mean, techno is just EDM now. You know, it's the same thing it always was. Uh, I, I mean, you know, you you go on. I mean, yeah, techno is not underground. You go on Instagram, and it's just like techno seems very. I mean, EDM culture is now techno culture, um, and so everything's just kind of like reduced down to nothing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think part of part of it is that increasingly uh, certainly in new york that like techno is is filling a kind of um it's performing a, a kind of basic market function rather than kind of uh you know serving as kind of a medium of expression it's, kids want to hear 40 hertz at one like repeated at 138 bpm for six hours while they while they you know take drugs um which is fine. Yeah, that's the yeah, it's great, but it certainly mm. like there's no it it just kind of is now in a space where I think we were all used to for a long time uh having it be a bit more focused on uh yeah, like you're saying music that was more built for expression or or something like that that didn't necessarily need to serve a very clear uh function. Well, yeah, like like I mean, you know, I think for for a lot of us who are making music during you know the the whatever like the kind of early tens uh, kind of n the early tens you know early boom of uh, New York techno um, in that period it was very much about yeah like exploring kind of brushing up against the formal limits of these the, of these of these forms um, kind of uh, playing with them breaking them down pushing them in various directions. Um, and a lot of great music came out of that. Um, yeah. It just makes me wonder if things are going according to plan, this means that minimal is next. Uh, minimal's been next for years. Yeah, small. Right. <laughs> that's, 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 that's my running joke is that, that minimal's back and it's, it's, it's minimal's coming back and it's going to become be called small, S-M-O-L. <laughs> um, oh my God. It's it's gonna happen. It's yeah, gonna it's gonna happen. happen. Um, it's just I, you know is I would just think about like when it came back in the you know in that two thousand two thousand three two thousand four two thousand five just like it it was different from when it was the first time it was a, it was sort of like a different version of it. Oh yeah yeah like well like like ninety five ninety seven right minimal techno was very rooted in Detroit right it was awesome and the, then the tools are different the tools were different and yeah. so and so it makes me wonder with the tools being different another 15 years 
<clears throat> from when that happened the first time, what will it sound like this time? I think how, tool, how will small sound? I think the tools are actually less different now, yeah, even though it's been, with, yeah. with 15 years apart than they were between the first the, time and the second years, time. But yeah, seven, eight years before I, the first time. I just think, you know, how many ping pong delays I heard in 2006. <laughs> ping pong delays still around on Ableton and everyone still uses Ableton, you know? So, But yeah, I mean, it's, but it will, will it happen again this way? I don't know. It, it's well, hard. Do people remember how bad it sounded the first time? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it sounds good now, though. The, the, like, it does Well, no. Well, the kids will think so. Because, you know, they think, like, you know, trance shit. pads are amazing. Yeah, shit, I should, play, you know? I should play that Loco Dice track in my next set and really blow some heads. <laughs> blow everyone's mind. Uh, no, no, I mean, like, like all, all of the kind of, like, gauchest and most, like, grating signifiers of the 90s have now become hip. So yeah, ping pong delay is going to all be at sick. the same time. All yeah, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really, a lot. It's, it's exhausting. A, it's a lot. It's a lot for us, us old folk to take in. Cz, you were going to say something. I heard you. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about Luciano. Oh man, <laughs> I'm thinking about Luciano all the time. Baby. I'm, just, I'm just right now. You can't see it, but I'm twirling one hand and I'm making a whistle face. <laughs> I am Luciano for for Halloween. <laughs> Friend of the show. Luciano? <laughs> Luciano's a patron. Oh my god. And you should be too. And you should be too. This is the this is this is where we plug the Patreon. Luciano and uh Loco Dice. And uh, Marco Corolla are all patrons. So back to back. <laughs> Marco Corolla, yeah. Yeah. So maybe you know, maybe you should think about joining. I don't know. Just consider it. Just consider it. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't. Base camp beta the ping pong delay of the podcast. Oh, sh- <laughs> oh god! <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, I. I don't know. I don't know what's next. I certainly don't uh, love forecasting trends. A because uh, none of us are good at them, and B because who cares? Um, <laughs> Both very good points. <laughs> but you know, something's gonna happen. Uh, you know, I have. I feel very confident that even though uh, the apparatus around music is going to be shit, um, there will be good music in the future. Yeah, for sure. That's true. Um, and That's I don't true. know what it sounds like. It might, the the particulars of what it sounds like aren't important, um, but I am pretty sure that there will be good music made by interesting people and you know that uh you know we'll all enjoy going out to hear music or maybe it'll just be like a kind of hybrid of certain things from the past or maybe it could be something completely new but i think the like constant search for something like totally new um is a dead end i mean people like cultures have been making the same style of music for thousands of years right and we're it's quite good <laughs> we're quite fucking happy with it and it still rules yeah and i don't think we should think that we need to be constantly like coming up with a new genre every five years for I think sure it's a trap i guess i just also think about how a lot of the music that we love now was groundbreaking and was defying past templates and was yeah and was setting people's hair on fire because it's like, holy shit, I've never heard anything like this. But I, I think like the, the, the explosion of forms that we saw from basically, well, really like from like the late seventies until the late nineties, but you know, in regards to just kind of dance music and techno 
what we saw happen from, you know, 1991, 1990 until 96, 97, like those five, six years in there, that's never going to happen again. We will not see like, like this, like, like explosion of new forms. Um, that can't happen because I think, yeah, like, like fundamentally there's only so much you can do with dance music before it stops being dance music. You can only go so fast. You can only go so slow. You can only vary rhythms to whatever degree before it stops being functional for the dancer or the DJ. Um, you know, there, there are, there are, there are eventual like kind of hard formal limits with this stuff. Um, I guess the only thing I can think of that has been new since all this stuff is something that literally breaks all these rules and makes it not dance music in the traditional way is post club music, which was literally just literally deconstructing right. what, you know, what had been made. And it literally did make it harder for the dance floor, harder for the DJ. But it was also the first time it felt like there was like something, a different sort of energy being brought into I think Not to say that any of those things that make up that music weren't previously existing, but the way that they were hybridized together, right. like, like an amalgamation of like bizarre things that you wouldn't have expected, it did feel, even though I can't say I liked any of it. Uh, <laughs> what it, were those tracks? I still don't know like what counted as this sort of post club deconstructed club music i mean i'm rabbit rabbit it was uh, the low tick okay um triangle rec- records a little bit that was post witch house well <laughs> also a thing well, um, uh, so is i mean is is rabbit deconstructed club i think so yeah i mean i uh, i would call it that okay the, I guess it's sort of like the hybridization of like non-musical sounds with dance music forms, but also without there being like the same formalized structures. You know, you don't, you don't, you can't count on a breakdown happening at a certain time. Right, right, right. It's just much more unpredictable. And I would say it's it was a very youth-driven format. A lot of the people who were making it uh, were. Uh, queer, young, a lot of times people of color. And it was like a very, like breaking all the rules sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that to some extent that it's actually, what's interesting is the ripples out from that have been how it changes how people see DJing and like the importance of, or the lack of importance of beat matching yeah. or the lack of importance of, you know, keeping one groove going throughout the night or whatever that ends up being. But I think that like that has had a, even if you don't hear that music being made as much anymore, I feel like it, it did have an impact on like what people's expectations were, which is more than you can say for a lot of uh, other dance music. Sure. Yeah. Like it or not. I do think a lot of the gestures that, and this isn't to like this isn't to this isn't to downplay deconstructed club, um, but I do think a lot of those a lot of similar gestures were made in a lot of the IDM like the kind of late period IDM from like ninety nine yeah. to two thousand four. We see a lot of like like the glitch yeah more like, stuff? like 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 schematic records like some of the yeah. stuff on Tiger Beat Six even is is doing the same kind of uh, was doing the same kind of like. Uh, reappropriating, re- recontextualizing of pop music and uh, and world musics mm-hmm. within this like kind of super glitchy, uh, you know, super complex, super undanceable, unmixable way. Um, obviously, the context is pretty different now. Well, relatively different, um, but maybe not as different as it seems. Yeah, th- that is to say, we are living in in, in the late '90s again. And, <laughs> um, yeah, even when you think you're doing something different. 
cats will always come to tell you you're wrong. <laughs>